podcast. My name is Tim Peterson. I'm senior media editor at Digiday. And I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digiday. So Kaylee, this week you spoke with Reva Sarap, who is the president of Apartment Therapy Media. Apartment Therapy Media, they're in the events business. Um, I think we're past the point or at least getting past the point of talking about like the return of in-person events or the status of you know hybrid events but what is apartment therapies events strategy at the moment yeah so i had actually attended one of their events earlier this year and um even covered it for digiday and the interesting part of their event strategy is how much of a commerce tie-in there is and we've seen other publishers like um you know complex do this and and have a really kind of big you know, onus on the shoppable nature of getting people together. But with apartment therapy, they kind of take a inspiration approach. So they give their audiences the ability to shop, you know, the things that they're showing in their events, you know, at their small cool event earlier this year, it was, you know, different um, rooms that were designed by specific designers and you could, you know, click, uh, use a QR code to click through and, you know, eventually buy the couch if you wanted to, you know, buy a couch um, from your phone kind of thing. And, um, you know, it's an interesting approach. It's really focused on kind of what Riva says is a very user-friendly approach of just giving people like all of the tools at their disposal. Um, what it does mean for apartment therapy, though, and, and Riva talks about this a bit, is there's the you know chance of losing a lot of attribution because rarely people will click you know through a QR code and ultimately buy a couch from West Elm. You know in the, you know, four-step journey or whatever it is um, from attending the event. So because they lose some attribution, a lot of it is really focused on sponsorship revenue still um, and using any kind of commerce data that's collected as more anecdotal evidence of these shoppable events working. So she gives some examples of, um, I believe it was West Elm saying that they had sold a few sofas through um, one of their virtual um, events that they had done. And while there wasn't direct linkage from one to the other, it was very much timed around the event happening. So, and it was the same sofas that were at the event. So they're trying to kind of crack the code. And I think this is especially the case for next year around the convergence of commerce and um, events in regards to these larger, more, you know, furniture oriented, um, you know, topics. But their approach to events is, you know, a really interesting one. And it's still, I think, I think she says about 10% of their revenue and, and commerce is about 15%, but they're growing, you know, both areas are growing. And so we talk about that to a degree as well. Cool. Looking forward to hearing more. Thanks, Kayla. Thanks, Tim. Reva, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. How are you? I am great. How are you doing? I'm thrilled to be here. I'm good. So I wanted to have you on because I feel like in the past year or so covering apartment therapy, a lot of what I've been covering from you guys is around your events, your experiential, and also how that kind of dovetails with commerce. And I know you guys just wrapped up uh, an experiential partnership with Pinterest that kind of tied in that commerce piece as well. So I wanted to chat with you kind of about how you're converging those businesses, um, how it ties into Q4, which is, you know, obviously a really hot time for commerce um, and events too. And uh, chat with you a little bit about what 
all of those mean leading into the new year. So, um, yeah. So I guess to like kick it off, um, I would love to kind of hear about this Dine by Design uh, event that you did with Pinterest earlier this month. So this is uh, this was from November 2nd to the 13th, I believe. Um, but yeah, I'd love to kind of hear about how this event came to be and what the goal of it was, if it was really rooted in commerce for you guys, or if you were trying to get more, um, you know, inspiration for editorial, like what the real emphasis was for this particular event. Yeah, of course. So the genesis of this event, actually, Jeremy Jankowski from Pinterest, he runs um, for the lifestyle team, a lot of the creator program where they work to help the creators create stronger ecosystems. Um and really build up their followings and also sort of express themselves more creatively, had come to me, he had been to Small Cool, like yourself, um, was really blown away by it and the visual discovery that went along with all of it. And he said, are you doing anything special for holiday? And, you know, we're a very stats-driven and insights-driven organization, and we had been doing some research on our audience. And what we found was that 90% of our audience was sort of judging their home before every event that they were hosting. 90% of our audience was looking to host more than ever this holiday season because they're sort of heading back home for economic reasons, but heading back home with open spaces. Um, and that most of them were coming to us actually looking for inspiration about what to purchase in terms of this entertaining. So, you know, JJ and I sort of mused on this a little bit and this idea of tablescapes and creating this beautiful showcase of different designs came together. You know, the way that we approach a lot of our events is, you know, obviously we want another way to engage our consumers. Um, you know, we always want people to be able to sort of touch and feel home products in person, because that really is such a big part of purchasing for the home. And then we always want a way to elevate design voices, because there's so many incredible, diverse design voices out there from a geo background, aesthetic point of view. So, you know, that was really rooted in what we do best, which is visual identity and sort of visual discovery paired with utility. And that was the beginning of Dime by Design. So the event itself, as you said, took place from the 2nd to the 13th. We chose to host it at Showfields, which was brand new and which was opening up in Brooklyn, you know, is very much in line with which what we do, which is sort of content paired with commerce with sort of this lifestyle bent. Um, we had 10 different designers come in. Each one of them created two play settings with the same theme. We set these up as two long tables. We hosted a series of three different um, influencer dinners. So each one of these was hosted by a different Pinterest influencer, I apologize, two Pinterest-hosted influencer dinners, one Pinterest-influencer-hosted brunch. Um, at each of these, we had 20 participants who were largely Pinterest influencers, and then we opened it up to the public. And so we had about 6,500 people walk through and experience. The entire thing was shoppable. So we had QR codes on all of the tables so that people could scan them and get the products, you know, right from there. We also created shoppable Pinterest boards. You know, Pinterest is really facilitating a lot of shopping from its platform recently. So it was a wonderful pairing of the two. Um, we don't have the commerce data quite yet because it just wrapped, what is it now, eight days ago. But we're seeing huge amplification of the contest uh, content on Pinterest. The All of the creators who created, we actually enlisted another 30 nano influencers who didn't attend the events per se, but actually created sort of their own idea pin moments that allow with Dime by Design. So all of these together had about 85 million reach. Um, we've seen almost 500 Pinterest boards, idea pins created around this. About 150 of them 
our video. And it's just a perfectly merged experience, I think, of everything we in Pinterest believe in and just was a terrific partnership. Yeah. So getting into the influencer side of things quickly, because I just want to define what a nano influencer is versus maybe someone who was heading up the, uh, you know, one of the brunches or dinners. Um, I guess, like, how do creators factor into this from your perspective? Because obviously Pinterest um, is, you know, top users are really important to them. But um, from like a, I guess, creator perspective, how does this uh, benefit the apartment therapy brand? And then um, what are some of those, I guess, like definitions for, uh, you know, nano or, you know, maybe the creator as right. well? That's a good question. Um, you know, I would have to ask Pinterest what the exact sort of follower count would be to separate sort of creators versus nano. Nano, we usually define as people who have a great presence on the platform, but maybe don't have a huge following of 100,000 or something like that. We, Apartment Therapy, has 6 million followers on Pinterest right now, which was very much driven by their introduction of idea pins, which just enables so much more creativity through the platform. And so the top creators, the ones that were chosen to host events and attend the events, were typically those who had a slightly higher following. And nano influencers, you know, are still ones that Pinterest is looking to support and incubate in different ways. So those were brought in at a slightly different level. A little bit was also dictated in terms of the presence at the events by Geo because not everybody was able to fly in. And so part of it was just, you know, who could actually be there um, and also had a great following. In terms of um, your question about how it benefited the apartment therapy brand, um, you know, I think it's really important that we bring forward in a physical way what we express on our digital platforms. And I think, you know, there's so many benefits to events, whether that's small cool, which is sort of a tentpole, you know, multi-sponsor event or a bespoke single sponsor event like Dime by Design, like a pop-up that we did with IKEA. Um, the Sunroom in Miami earlier this year. I think it's really important that our audience engage with us in person. Um, I think it's mm -hmm. a very connective moment for our audience. And I think, you know, the brand to be aligned this way with phenomenal designers, with great utility, um, with a wonderful partner like Pinterest was just a terrific brand moment for us. Yeah. And I definitely want to get into um, Small Cool, which is I attended that one uh, earlier know. this year and it was really it was really neat. Um, but I wanted to I, I do want to get into some of those events that have already happened that we can kind of dig into a little bit of the data from those as well. But um, I, I guess I'm curious, like how commerce and events like maybe talking at a higher level, how you see those two um, coming together? Because it seems like the past few events you've held do have that commerce layer on top, the QR code, um, you know, method of purchasing products. So you, to be clear, I feel like, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but for a small cool, you couldn't buy anything in person, but you could buy it online. Sounds like that was the same concept for um, Dine by Design. So I guess like how does the convergence of commerce come into play? And do you see this um, as a necessary kind of pairing of businesses in, you know, going ahead into 2023 when you're thinking ahead to other events? Like how important is that commerce piece of it, um, both for you and also for the audience at this stage? Yeah, I mean, I think that the inspiration, well, I don't think, I know, <laughs> that the inspiration for Small Cool came from, I was attending a big um, home trade show and I found myself really frustrated that I couldn't buy anything off the floor, that in order for me to purchase something, I would have to reach out 
to the brand. The brand would have to send pricing and a tear sheet and all this kind of stuff. I would have to go through a designer. And I sort of thought, you know, is there a way that we can create these multi-retailer moments? Because nobody is going into a store and purchasing their entire room or an entire space from one retailer. So the multi-retailer piece of it has always been really critical for everything we do because that's how people are consuming. So how can we create these multi-retailer spaces that enable this utility piece? You know, everything we do editorially, via commerce, hopefully via advertising, pairs inspiration with utility. We're completely driven by that because, you know, we want it to be practical. We want it to be things that people can really take with them and apply to themselves. And I think giving them easy access to purchasing everything that we show is a critical part of that. So, you know, is commerce a piece of it because we think we're going to make $10 million off commerce purchases at these events? No, but I think it's scaling and we're seeing it scale. And I think we know that in order to do it, they have to be able to buy it. And, you know, as we look at small, cool, in 2023, if I can sort of jump ahead, we've pushed it to the of fall. Course. We've oh, thank you. <laughs> like, thank you for just letting me talk. <laughs> we've pushed it to the fall this year um, for a couple different reasons. But the biggest one is that we feel like consumers will be in a more comfortable place to spend and that hopefully all of the economic uncertainty will settle down a little bit. But as we look at small cool and sort of the evolution of small cool, everything that we did last year, the 12 trend spaces the great VIP party, the shoppable components, that's all going to be there. But we're looking to introduce even more utility. So utility by having like more tips that people can take away from the event, more sort of high and low products so that there might be, you know, more expensive pieces like sofas and rugs, which is honestly actually what we're seeing our audience gravitate towards buying like crazy right now on a commerce perspective, um, but also more low items that they can purchase very easily that might be like a $20 vase or, you know, some little tchotchke that they can incorporate into their home. We're also looking at bringing in what we're calling micro moments. So again, with the economic uncertainty, our feeling is, you know, look, people are back home again. We know that they're spending back home again. However, I don't think that they're sort of in that COVID phase where they're like making over their entire apartment and or house, um, you know, trying to just rip the whole thing to the studs and do it all over again and making home offices. But what they are doing because they're home more and they're entertaining more at home is they're looking to create sort of these small moments within their spaces that can really transform the room. So maybe that's a coffee table moment or a bar cart moment or a little nook in your living room that's always been sort of empty that you think can make it pop. So a big part of the event this year is going to be to have 10 of these micro moments, which are very small changes that you can make in your space that'll have really, you know, meaningful effect on the aesthetics of it and sort of how you feel in it. And then we're also planning to actually introduce a cash and carry boutique this year. So to your point, okay. people can actually like purchase some products at the event itself and walk out with it, which we think would be a really nice sort of addition for our audience. Yeah, absolutely. And definitely a ton to unpack from that. I think um, sticking with the kind of economic uncertainty too of it. So it's interesting that you're kind of seeing consumer habits already changing in terms of like where they're investing in their home, where they're spending, you're right. They're not really doing as many giant like, you know, full room makeovers. Um, there's, I think, far fewer of those like accent walls that people are painting, you know, bright colors this year than there were in like 2020. But um, I am curious, like, from an advertising perspective and the partners that you use um, in these events, right? Like, are there, is there also kind of um, 
and ask to to delay until maybe the economic uncertainty is hopefully less uh, intense, I guess? Like, is there also advertiser support to delay the event? Are you seeing, like, more asks for later in the year uh, one-off events, too? Like, how's the kind of advertiser side of things, um, I guess, shaking out from an experiential perspective next year? Yeah. I mean, advertising has really been something this past year. (laughs) Yeah. It's really been an interesting ride. So I don't think we have not been getting a lot of requests from advertisers to delay per se. And I will also say that we have gotten more RFPs, um, also including experiential in the last few weeks, especially coming off of Dime by Design and all of the coverage that that got more RFPs than I think I've actually ever seen in such a short period of my career. So what we're seeing is that You know, this year, I think in terms of advertising, generally, I think especially in the back half, there were a lot of changes that we've all had to adapt to. And I think one of it is sort of this very, um, I hate to use the term bottom funnel because it sounds so dirty, but it's really like getting somebody right at that moment of purchase. Um, And the other piece, of course, is this sort of very like data-infused, insights-infused decisions. So, you know, it's like as opposed to just running a butter campaign, you know, how great that you can survey your audience, know everything that they're hoping to bake, and then create an entire campaign off of that insight around butter and the three desserts that everybody seems to be talking about. So I think there's indefinite evolution and what advertisers are looking for. However, my gut says until we get into Q1 and really see how the year is going to shake out, I don't know that brands are going to release budgets for things like experiential, which while they have a strong bottom funnel component, also have a strong top of funnel component. I think that's probably going to happen like mid to end of Q1. And so rather than sort of force this and try and make it happen at a time that's like uncomfortable for our big partners, we thought, let's just give us all a little bit of breathing room. We think the consumer will be happier having it then anyway. And that was the decision to push. We probably will be moving ahead on some type of in-person activations in the spring of next year. We're actually looking to make Dine by Design a seasonal franchise that we're popping up. Um, So that would be something that we would place in the spring. But for sure, I think, you know, we have a lot of really great partners and we don't want to sort of force them to commit to something that they they know works for them. A lot of them are ones that worked with us in the previous years, but maybe just need a little more time to figure it out. Yeah, that's really fair. Um, So when it comes to the kind of influx of RFPs that you've been seeing, is that timed for Q4 campaigns? Because a few stories that I wrote recently, some publishers were saying that um, they're getting a a lot more inbounds in Q4, but it's also for campaigns that are meant to run in Q4, like keeping it very timed to holiday, um, really quick turnarounds. um, And that's just kind of, I guess, a trend that's been maybe uh, somewhat ongoing, like shortened sales cycles have been ongoing since, you know, the pandemic. But I guess, like, what are the inbounds that you're getting right now? Is it still very focused on this year or are you starting to get some, you know, inquiries about next year already? Yeah, that's a great question. We are definitely getting some quick turn Q4 and we've adapted our offerings to be able to respond to those to get these campaigns up and running quickly. A lot of them are around targeting, quick turn content, you know, inclusion as shopping obsession of the day in our emails. And again, things that'll really impel somebody to purchase right now. The majority of the RFPs that we're seeing are 2023, full year, six month, sort of larger initiatives. And I think, you know, what it's what it's indicating to me 
You know, it's interesting. I think when when there is economic uncertainty, I think there can always be a tendency for brands. And my initial background was in marketing, so I get this, is to go like right to that sort of moment of purchase and like just like hit the bottom line as hard as you can. But I do think talking to our audience when their wallets are like either they're feeling a little tighter or they're concerned that they're going to feel a little tighter. I think that the brand piece of it is really critical, sort of the branding and the awareness and some of these KPIs that I think have sort of slid a little bit this year just because there's so much urgency about bringing the revenue in. And again, I totally get and respect that. But what's interesting is that the RFPs that we're seeing for 2023, while not entirely focused on branding and awareness, usually have a really strong component back. And I think it's like, you know, the advertising world goes through this little pendulum right? It swings back and forth. And I think 2023, what we're seeing right now is looking like it's going to be a big year where brands are sort of like, yeah, it might be a little bit more expensive to buy product X, but you should because the brand is so much better. The product is so much better. And really going back to delivering that messaging again, which is Mm -hmm. exciting for me as like a marketer at my heart. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back. Another thing I have heard is that the people who are already planning ahead for 2023 are looking for these much larger, much more in-depth campaigns. It's like a go bigger with fewer partners kind of mentality. At least that's what I've been hearing from the majority of the, I guess, revenue chiefs that I've been talking to uh, and other publishers holistically. But I guess that makes a lot of sense. Um, And getting back into Small Cool from this previous year. So that took place in, that was April, correct? Correct. Correct. It was April, yeah, mid-April so, into into early May. Right, because that was like a spanning like a month yes. long. Yeah. Um, so it was this like revival of Small Cool, um, which is a franchise you've done in the past. But can you talk about some of the successes that you saw from the sponsorship side of things, but also the consumer side of things too? Because I feel like um, despite you saying that, you know, the goal of this, of any event that you do is not to drive, you know, you know, hundreds of thousands of transactions or, you know, make, you know, a million dollars off of commerce, um, that is still a component and it still seemed to do pretty well from that end of things. Can you like unpack the kind of commerce results from Small Cool and then um, also the the sponsorship too we'll get into uh, as well? Yeah. You know, what's so interesting. I was just talking about this with someone. It's so hard to fully understand the commerce impact of Small Cool. The reason being, you were there last year. So many of the items are big ticket items. And so what happens is I think a lot of people scan it, they save it, they think on it, and then they purchase it at a later date, and then you don't have the attribution. What we know is that all of those retail partners who come in and participate in Small Cool, you know, two years ago, it was obviously a completely online event. We had to animate it. We had two weeks to evolve the whole thing when the world shut down. In the second year, it was not a consumer-facing event. So really, the way that people could shop primarily was through digital. And then we had a small number of press and influencers come through. As a consumer event, we had huge engagement with the QR codes, huge engagement with the product on site as well. Um, All of the retailers who participated last year are asking if they can come back and participate again. So we're like taking our data almost a little bit qualitatively because it's like we know everybody had a good experience. Everybody was seeing bumps. Um, We had one partner who told us, who spent sort of a nominal amount of money that said they got a 40 
uh, 40 ROAS. So basically for every $1,000 they spent, they made $40,000 on the tracking on their end. We rely very heavily, I know, right? Not bad. We rely very heavily on partners to sort of report back to us because it's not necessarily attributed through. But we definitely see when the product is positioned in the right way at these events, it hits. I mean, in the same way that if you talk to a lot of um, primarily DTC or previously DTC brands, what they find is once they pop up a store in a geo, they'll see like three or four hundred percent increases in that geo, even though it's not coming directly through the store. So I think it's hard for us to get a full picture, but our gut says we know our audience is engaging with it. Two thirds of the people claiming they're purchasing something they saw at it, we don't have the full data to support it. <laughs> Got it. Were you using affiliate links on the QR codes or like when you, well, I guess not the QR codes, but like when you click through, like, so you did have like that, but to your point, like if someone's buying a couch, they're going to mull it over, maybe like bookmark it, take it back to whoever they're living with. Yes. Assess, shop around, I'm sure maybe. But um, so you do have some affiliate revenue tied to it, but it sounds like the bulk of revenue comes from the sponsorships um, that you have at, at these the, events. At this point, it does. But, you know, look, I think like the whole world of commerce, I think, is evolving. And I think there's other ways to figure out how to sort of make it work well. So an example would be um, in terms of social commerce. I was like two years ago bullish on like live shopping on social. I thought this was, you know, all blowing up and we tried all sorts of different ways. And to be quite honest, it didn't work. We had a small audience. They weren't really buying. We hadn't quite figured it out. But then recently we introduced a franchise called um, Personal Shopper. And with Personal Shopper, um, one of our editors goes into a retail location and he or she pulls out everything that is their favorite by category. So let's say we go in, we went into West Elm. It was all about sofas. It was, you know, the best sofa for lounging with friends, the best sofa to pull out when you have people sleep over, the best sofa for style. It broke out all these categories. We did a series of social first videos um, with her sort of walking out around and trying out all the sofas and explaining what she liked. We paired these with high SEO value flat content um, so that there were two components to it. It wasn't entirely dependent on the social video. And the two things combined drove $500,000 in sofa sales for West Elm, all tracked. So it's like, I think a lot of it with events also is figuring out like sort of what's the magic mix to make all these things trigger. And I think for Small Cool in particular, this high-low mix is going to be really, really key and making sure that we have lots of sort of like impulse purchases that they can buy right there, especially when it comes to our recognition of the revenue and attribution. So I don't want to say I'm not bullish on experiential commerce. I very much am. Um, And we have a couple ideas that we'd like to bring forward next year that are specifically like, here is our favorite product for X kind of a moment. Um, And I think those will do very, very well. But I think, you know, like everyone, we're sort of testing the waters and figuring out the formula. That's fascinating that sofas, of all things, are able to be bought over like social commerce posts. Like that's entirely fascinating to me. Also really cool. And so I think the other thing in terms of like how your commerce business is set up, right, is like, and maybe this is a little bit more of a, maybe not an issue, but a consideration from last year is like the supply chain impacts on um, furniture, like and how delayed certain things were. I remember like I was trying to buy a uh, 
a coffee table and it was like, oh, this will show up May 2023. And this was like, you know, months ago, um, which was a really long time to wait. But I guess, does that still factor into your commerce business at this point? Like, have you made any um, pivots? Like, how are you kind of tackling that issue if it is still an issue at all? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely still an issue. (laughs) I think you're definitely not the only one who's experiencing it. But I think what we're finding is, um, you know, just a major shift in our editorial content, which is obviously very closely connected to our commerce content and what we're bringing forward generally in response to, again, sort of a little bit of uncertainty and some people being impacted at this point. And I think, you know, what people are looking for is sort of two areas. And that's very much that people are like heading back home again, but again, heading back home to sort of open homes where they're having people come in. Um, And then they're looking for a lot of smart spending advice. But what they're looking for is not necessarily like, how do I save a dollar, but how do I use my money sort of more wisely? And so what we found with furniture specifically is that people are really going heavily on these sort of essential home items. So in the same way that like they're still going crazy for our trends content, it's not trends to your point, like how do I pop up a statement wall? It's trends like what trends can I bring into my home that'll still be in style five years from now? Like they're looking to Mm -hmm. do things like much more thoughtfully in their spaces. And so items like um, sofas are huge right now in terms of commerce for us. Rugs, huge. On Cubby, which is our parenting site, things like beds are going crazy. I mean, as a parent, I can say you always want your child to sleep. So (laughs) I understand that. But I think they're investing very very heavily in things that they deem essentials sort of to their life and long term. You know, obviously on kitchen, it's more sort of small appliances, cooking, bakeware, things of that nature. But interestingly, with everything as it is, our commerce sales continue to go up. It's just what people are purchasing is not sort of these like fun little impulse buys as much. It's things that'll really last and have staying power and value as well right now. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, in covering commerce for a while, like mattresses is always this really strong category from so many different publishers, not even just like home publishers, like so many, like a really wide range of publishers. It's very fascinating. But because those are such high ticket items, like the conversion rates are, you know, pretty good. And that like ends up being a solid like revenue driver. So it makes sense if you're seeing more sofas and rugs, which are hundreds of dollars, selling at a higher rate right now, it makes sense that like commerce revenue is also going up. Um, And so I guess like looking holistically at this year, I think um, I think I heard or saw that about 10% of overall revenue was experiential um, this year for you guys. What's the kind of revenue breakdown um, coming into the end of this year that you're kind of seeing? Is advertising still like a top category? Um, How's commerce been performing? Curious like what your breakdown is looking like. Yeah, so we're about um, 35% each for direct advertising and programmatic advertising. And I bundle direct programmatic and sort of that programmatic bucket. So that continues to comprise a significant part of our revenue. Commerce um, comprises about 15% of our total revenue at this point, experiential 10%, and then licensing, um, which is a couple different buckets within there. So we have licensing deals with Interior Define, um, which is a company, I don't know if you're familiar with them, they produce beautiful sofas and chairs and items for the home. We have a couple, Maxwell Ryan, who's our CEO, collections that he's created there. And then we work with a company called BEMS that enables you to sort of pretty up your, um, 
IKEA furniture. So we have produced a line of slipcovers. Again, it's like making more of what you have. It's this theme yeah. for them that's done extremely well. And then that also encapsulates like our seal licensing content, content licensing, and all that sits in that bucket. Looking at kind of overall revenue trends for the year, are you seeing this be a growth year? Is it, I mean, given what's happening with advertising, um, maybe not as like intense growth as perhaps predicted at the end of 2021, which was a solid year for a lot of people. But um, how's the kind of overall revenue trajectory looking? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not my favorite year, if I'm being (laughs) honest. Um, It has been a slog this year. And I think, look, it's like you have all these things. I've been I've been in digital media since the late 90s. I was, you know, part of the team that invented the first ad banner. I feel like I've seen a lot of what's happening. And I think it's been a very unusual time because what we often see is, um, you know, consumer content consumption behaviors change. You sometimes see consumer purchasing behavior change. You sometimes see advertiser behavior change, but rarely do they all change at the exact same time. So mm-hmm. this was definitely a readjustment year for us to kind of, first of all, get a handle on what the, the audience wanted to consume from a content perspective, right? Because it's like, we've been through this weird phase where obviously first during the pandemic, everybody's sort of went home, wanted to redo their whole homes, bake all the bread, you know, disinfect every surface. And then everything opened up and everybody wanted to travel, go out, spend, spend, spend. And now what we've seen is everybody's heading back home again, but in a totally different way. So first we sort of had to say, okay, they're back home, but like, what do they want to do? So even if you look at things that are spiking, like on Kitchen, for example, baking content, which was so huge during the pandemic because everybody's making bread, they still love baking content, but they're they're looking for things like how to make a chocolate eclair because they're opening up their homes to people. Like, so everything is sort of the same, but with like a slightly a, a different shift. Like they're very into small spaces still um, because they want to figure out how to make the most of their home. But again, that takes a slightly different bend. Trends takes a slightly different bend. So I think we sort of had to adapt our content, which seems to be working. I was watching our Parsley like a maniac all weekend, and we were up like 30% year over year over the weekend. So that was really (laughs) exciting to see. And then sort of evolving the products that we were bringing forward. And I think, you know, advertising was very difficult. I think a lot of our normal big partners pulled back in the back half. So we did fine this year, but I definitely think 2023, I feel much more optimistic about what's to come. Um, than what we're coming out of, <laughs> if I'm being totally honest. Yeah, interesting. And I mean, again, to your point, like different reporting, I guess, from like a variety of people at, at Digiday have kind of said like the first half of the year still looks a little fuzzy, but like back half, there's optimism. Is that kind of what you're thinking with next year? Like things will be hopefully, knock on wood, back to a solid place, like kind of back half where you're placing some of those events again, or you're, you know, uh, looking to the next season of like holiday entertaining, things like that. Like, is that kind of your prediction? Yeah, I think, so what I'm seeing is, you know, some of the reasons that we took such, not such dips, but we weren't where we wanted to be this year was because our audience wasn't where we're accustomed to them being. Um, And we were really trying to figure out commerce behavior again, because we've, I mean, that business has almost quadrupled in the last three or four years. So we wanted to stay on track with that. So I think the Q1 is going to be challenging from a direct advertiser perspective. I feel good about our programmatic business, our commerce business, and our licensing business because those are really have picked up so much traction this quarter. And I think we're going to be sort of back to where we hope to be. For me, looking at all the opportunities and the conversations that we're having and sitting down with clients all the time, 
I think Q2 could actually be, unless something, you know, look, I'm, I'm not an economist, so I can't say exactly yeah. what's to come. <laughs> um, I would hate to pretend that I was. But Q2 looks to me like a big turnaround time, certainly for us, um, in terms of us started, starting to go back to the, the goals that we had established for sort of our long-term three- to five-year plan. And then I do think as we go into the back half, all of that is going to fully start to realize, which is also part of the reason that Small Cool was pushed. Gotcha. Gotcha. I kind of want to circle back to social commerce for a second because you had mentioned that you tested live shopping, which I, for the past few years, people have, were really bullish on it, weren't really sure. They, you know, saw the indications that like, you know, Chinese consumers were really into live shopping. So they thought it would do well here too. I have yet to talk to someone who's done it to the point where I'm like, like, they were like, yeah, that was a, a huge success. Um, and you mentioned that you didn't really, I guess, love the result or see like a, a big pickup from it. Like, I, I guess I'm curious to just unpack that a little bit more. Like, what were some of the takeaways from it? What didn't your audience like respond to? Because I, I think that's just a really still burgeoning area that I don't know. I, I feel like I haven't heard like a great amount of insights on because people are still really just early days testing it, maybe. I agree. I think in some of our early goes, what we tried to do was produce these shopping lives. We called them Shop Talk. We put them out on Instagram and um, TikTok. And by the way, I'm a huge fan of TikTok. So no, you know, anything to TikTok. I, my daughter and I combined probably spend two hours a day on there. So <laughs> I'm a fan. Uh, um, yeah, I'm with you on that. <laughs> I'm a huge fan. Um, but we weren't seeing the audience sort of signing on for lives in the middle of the day, which is when we were mostly trying these, and we weren't seeing the purchasing. And I think that was very much about the format of the experience. You know, interestingly, last week we did um, our first Pin TV live with Pinterest. Charlie Penn, who's our executive lifestyle director, who is a phenomenal personality and also brilliant. Um, the, we went into her home. She had picked all of these products to purchase as gifts for the holidays that were also at a low cost. I, have you seen the Pin TV experience yet, Lives? I haven't. You know, I used Pinterest a lot in high school because it had just came out. And for whatever reason, I just like stopped using it. But recently when my friends were getting married, we kind of like built pins up again. Anyway, I have to basically return to Pinterest because I feel like it's a... <laughs> a good platform. I just like don't use it in my personal life. I think some people have moved away from it and are probably moving back. Just the traction and growth we're seeing there is insane. Um, and the opportunity and our audience being there. But but so we did with them a, um, a Pin TV Live. It was an hour long. We had about 2,500 viewers at any given moment during the live, which is a pretty great turnout for something that lasts for a full hour. And the way that the experience happens is that you have the talent talking. And then as they're talking, all of the products are appearing along the side and you can click directly over from those to purchase. And I think it's an excellent experience and it has made me far more interested um, in live shopping as something that we have the potential to really pull off and monetize in the future. So we don't have the results from a commerce perspective for that yet because it just happened on Tuesday. Um, but interested to see that. And then, of course, everything gets replicated as shoppable Pinterest boards on Pinterest. So all the products are sort of extracted and pulled in there. We had a lot of the people who sent us products actually provide special discount offers. So I'm not saying like live shopping is now if you're not QVC, but like I am saying I, I do. I'm starting to see the potential in the future. Um, 
and definitely keeping my eyes open. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. So, I mean, I know you guys partnered uh, with Pinterest, so there's, I'm sure, some sort of like, you know, monetary revenue kind of side of that relationship. But like from an actual social commerce perspective, do you see that kind of as a top platform that's like from a social platform perspective that's capable of getting into like social commerce in a successful manner? Like I think obviously Instagram tried and rolled back. TikTok has tried, somewhat rolled back, somewhat leaned in. Um, Facebook, I don't really know what's going on over there. But like in general, from a social commerce perspective, are there platforms that you think are just more suited to kind of experimentations in that area? Or I guess like what's your thinking holistically at social commerce? Yeah, that's a good question. I definitely think that Pinterest has a great potential to capture that just because they're so product focused to begin with. So I think mm -hmm. once you layer on the shopability, they've made it very easy to add commerce links, affiliate links. So I think that there is a potential there and definitely something that we're talking to them about more and more. We have done quite a bit of shopping content on Instagram. And in fact, Personal Shopper, which I had mentioned earlier with West Elm, was something where we pushed the video out on Instagram and saw a tremendous response there and some purchasing happening there. I think, you know, we all think that once TikTok makes shopping directly from the TikToks more widely available, I think that there's also a tremendous opportunity there. So I wouldn't say that we're sort of like saying none of these platforms are going to work. I think we're waiting and seeing what they bring forward in terms of their product offering. And then we'll sort of respond accordingly and invest where it makes sense. And right now, is most of your commerce uh, transactions happening on site or like on O&O, &O, I guess, channels, newsletters and things like that? Yeah, the vast majority are happening through our site at this point, um, for sure. And I think a lot, you know, look, when it comes to commerce, I think bringing forward new franchises, bringing forward new formats are going to be critical. Like this year, um, Yasmin Lashley, who's our GM on the commerce side, introduced this new gift guide format where you can search by recipient and the type of present you want to give. This all, you know, we've tried this before, but we've made it product first. This time it all brings you to content. And we're finding a 17% click-through rate on all of the content to product. So it's like, it's a new format for us that now we're going to lean more heavily into. But I think on the commerce side, it's a lot of testing and learning. And I think, you know, this year, one of our great initiatives was establishing this proprietary database where all of our commerce insights come in and get sort of cold so that it can guide the editors in terms of what products people are shopping for most, what formats people are responding to, what retailers they're most inclined to purchase from. So I think also just being able to make continually more informed decisions about how we're bringing things forward and what we're covering and where we're sending them to is now really was like our 2022 setup that I think is going to really help things pop in 23. Got it. All right. Well, that pretty much brings us to the end of the episode. Um, thank you so much, Reva, for joining me and chatting through all things commerce and experiential and ads and your candor around kind of what you're seeing right now. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to see you again. I feel like it hasn't been since Small Cool, right? Thanks again for having me. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Digiday podcast. Thank you to everyone for listening. And please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. We'll be back next week with another episode.